Uh, let's, let's open our word of prayer. Father, we do ask that you open our hearts to hear what you have to say um, from your word. And uh, give us ears to hear uh, as we learn from this, uh, your word this morning. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, and good morning. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor here. Uh, happy President's Day weekend. Um, I hope you got big plans tomorrow to celebrate President's Day, because I know I do. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you do. What do you do on President's Day? I'm really not sure. Um, sleep in, I guess. Anyway, um, this week, as I, was, as I was preparing for this message, I got a letter from my alma mater, which is uh, Taylor University. It's a small school in Indiana. And I got this letter, and first it made me feel old again, um, which, you know, I don't think you're, you're never too young to feel old. Um, so <laughs> I, I realized, man, there's no one there that even knows who I am anymore. It was kind of depressing. Um, but I got over that quickly, and I just, it just got me thinking about kind of college life again, and just that period in my life. And uh, I, I remembered the first time I came home from college over Christmas break, uh, and uh, I, it's this, if you remember that time, or if you're in that time, it can be a little awkward, this first trip home from college, because in college you've been, you know, you kind of had a clean slate in college. You know, no one really knew who you were. You could, could kind of redefine yourself. No one knew your junk and, you know, your embarrassing stories. Uh, but when you come home, everybody knows that stuff. So it's, a, it's this awkward time. Um, so for example, one of my high school friends, um, when he knew exactly who I was in high school. And so when I came back and we were spending time together, he was, he was really surprised to hear uh, that I'd become a Christian while away in school. And uh, in the middle of our conversation, I took it upon myself, you know, being the good Christian that I was, uh, that it was my job to convince him that there was a God and that he must believe in him. And so I I went through every argument I could think of, I, you know, every trick in the book for how you, I don't know, you trick someone into believing that there's a God. I bombarded him with information. It had, to have been, it had to have been at least an hour, and he was very patient with me because it must have been pretty annoying what I was doing. Uh, and at the end of my diatribe, and, and by the end I mean when I started running out of breath, I paused and I said, so, do you, do you believe in God now? After all that, and he, he looked at me and he said, well, no, not really. Uh, and I said, but, but what about all the evidence? Have you listened to anything I've said the last hour? I said, what about this issue and that? And, you know, where do you think sunsets come from or whatever it is that I was saying? And he, he, he looked at me and he said, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I said, well, then why don't you believe? Why, why won't you even consider it? And, and what he said next was, was shocking to me uh, at the time. He said, because I don't want to. I don't believe in God because I don't want to believe in God. My life is, is fine right now. I, I don't need Him. And I learned in that moment uh, that sometimes, maybe even most of the time, the most important question is not whether we believe in God or not. It's whether we want to. That's whether we want to. If, if you're here and you don't know what you think about God or maybe you don't believe in Him, ask yourself that question. Do I even want to? But even if you're already a Christian this morning, you're already a follower of Jesus. You have to wrestle with this question too. Because when painful things happen to us, when something hard happens to us, when something difficult enters our life that we don't understand, even though we've settled the question, do we believe in God or not? The situation, it forces us to ask this deeper one, but do I still want to? Do I still want to believe in Him? 
Can I believe he's good when things are going so badly? Uh, Can I believe he's with me when I feel so alone all the time? Uh, Do I believe he guides me even when I feel I've made a bad decision and now I'm living in the consequences of it? Now, maybe it's not a trial in your life, like I described, that, that prompts this kind of question, but maybe it's just what God happens to say in his word about your marriage or about your sex life or about your money. Do you even want to believe what he says about those things? Or would it be easier to not have to care about what God cares about or, or play by his rules? Do we even want to believe in God, to acknowledge him and to trust him with our lives? These are scary questions for us because they move the question of God from our heads and into our hearts. In the Bible, there's nothing scarier, there's nothing more serious, there's nothing more dire than a heart that refuses to trust. It's a heart that says, I don't want to believe in God. There's nothing worse than disbelief. Do we even ask ourselves this question anymore in light of that? Do you want to believe? Do I want to believe? For the Israelites 3,500 years ago in our text this morning, the answer was no. They didn't want to believe anymore. They they refused to trust God and they make plans to return to Egypt. We're going to talk more about that. They would rather die, in other words, than listen to God. And in many ways, their story recorded here in Numbers 13 and 14, which we've just read part of it, is, is a warning to us. It's a warning of the subtle and life-threatening dangers of disbelief in our lives. So this morning, we're going to walk through the story together. We're going to pause throughout to reflect on the warnings of disbelief that we're learning in this text. And the sermon may feel a little different. It's a diagnostic of our hearts. So as you're listening, as we go through this, ask yourself, where am I most susceptible to disbelief in my life? Where are we most susceptible to disbelief? in our lives. And write those things down. Let this story be the warning that it was meant to be. All right, with that in mind, we open Numbers 13 at a place called Kadesh Barnea, uh, which is here. So Kadesh Barnea is this southern town where the red arrow's pointing. And all of the green space north of Kadesh Barnea is the promised land. Israel, so you'll notice Israel's on the cusp of the promised land of Canaan. This is the place where their entire history as a people has been pointing from Abraham on. And in verse 1 of chapter 13, God says to Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Now stop there for a second. God says, send men to spy out the land that I am giving as a gift to Israel. And this is a loaded statement because we have to, when he says that, we have to stop and think of everything that has happened, everything God has done to bring Israel to this moment, to this place. God is saying, when I rescued you from Egypt, when I defeated the most powerful nation on earth, it was to bring you here. When I parted the Red Sea and you walked on dry ground, it was to bring you here. When I made water come from the rock, when I made bread rain down from heaven, When I met you on the mountain and gave you the law, all of that was to bring you to this moment, this place. And God is saying, everything you have, everything you are, Israel, I gave you, I made you. This land, Canaan, is the culmination, it's the reason for all of it. So go in, go in and see the gift 
that I'm giving you. So the spies go in. They go in in verse 3. There are 12 of them, each one representing the tribe from which they come, the leaders of their tribes. They travel up and down the country from top to bottom. And the first thing they see is that God was not lying. This land is amazing. It's beautiful. Pomegranates and figs and grapes so large, it says in verse 23, it took two men to carry one cluster of grapes. And after 40 days, the spies return to Moses. And in verse 27, they basically say this. They return to Kadesh Barnea and they say, Moses, we've got good news and we've got bad news. The good news is the land is very good. Look at these grapes. Aren't they amazing? The bad news is we will never be able to take it. The inhabitants there, they are too strong. There are too many of them. They're too powerful. I don't care what God says, Moses. We cannot do this. And of course, by we can't do it, what they really mean is there's no, God can't do it. God cannot do this. And it's like, really? <laughs> After everything you've, you've been through, Israel, this is it. You're done. You give up. And if you, especially if you've been reading along and open here and you've been journeying along with Israel, you're shocked at this disbelief, at this total lack of trust. Because it's like after everything you've seen, Israel, he parted a Red Sea for you. You don't think he can go ahead of you and fight these nations with you? You don't think he can do that? After he's proven himself to you over and over and over again to spite yourselves, you can't trust him, you don't want to believe him? And we're tempted to think how stupid, how naive of them. Because we would never do this, right? We would never. Do, if we had seen everything Israel had seen, there's no, we, would have, we would have been the first to head into the land, right? Probably not. Because no matter our past experience, no matter how faithful God has been, no matter what he has done, no matter what you've seen him do, the disbelief is always possible. Disbelief is always possible. And this is the first warning we learn about disbelief. It is always possible. It's possible in the midst of fear and anxiety, yes, and I think that makes sense. We get that. But it's also possible in the midst of the miraculous. If you pause and you think about your, your life, you begin to realize that, that you, just like Israel and I, are, are surrounded by God's miraculous provision. Your job, your family, your house, your car, your health, your skills, your gifts, your education. That list could go on and on and on. And what did you do? What did you really do to earn any of that? And yet each one of us, and I'm guilty of this too, when push comes to shove, we have an existential spiritual crisis when one thing does not go our way. And it reminds me of uh, what one stand-up comedian said um, because we so often treat God this way. He, he talks about uh, how right now everything around us is amazing and nobody is happy. Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. And he, he illustrates that by talking about a time uh, he took a flight. And uh, in the middle of the flight, the, the flight attendant gets on the PA and says, listen, this is brand new. We're just starting this. There's now high-speed internet on this plane. So get out your laptops, get out your devices, and you can get online and surf the web. There was a time where that was new, is what I'm saying. Um, and he's reflecting on that. He says, I got my laptop open. I started surfing the web. He said, it was so fast. I was streaming YouTube videos. It was, the internet was moving so quickly. And then all of a sudden, it, it turned off. It, it, it malfunctioned. 
And uh, the internet, you know, crashed, and the, the, the flight attendant got back on the PA and said, listen, we're having a little glitch. We're going to fix it as soon as we can. I'm really sorry about the inconvenience. And this comedian says the guy next to him slammed his laptop shut and was like, oh, I can't believe this. And the comedian, reflecting on that, he's like, sir, you're sitting in a chair in the sky going hundreds of miles an hour. And 10 seconds ago, you were told that you could also surf the web while doing that, and you're frustrated that you can't do that anymore. Um, he, he concludes, he says, how quickly the world owes this guy something. And it's funny until you flip it and you say, how quickly God owes us something. How quickly that turns. Listen, there are a million amazing things happening around us all the time. God is constantly doing the miraculous around us. He's constantly providing for us. And yet we doubt him over and over again. We are never immune to doubting his goodness, his provision, his protection. Israel clearly wasn't. We aren't either. It is always possible. It is always a temptation to ignore what God has done in your life. Disbelief is always possible. And it always leads to more problems, which gets us back to to our story. Things, things are going from bad to worse in this Israelite camp. Uh, the, the more the spies talk amongst themselves about what they've seen, the more they begin to convince themselves that, uh, that, this land, that they are completely hopeless. Okay? They cannot take this land. They begin noting that every part of the land, the plains, the hills, the coast, they're all occupied by people stronger and more numerous than they are. And things begin really spiraling out of control until one of the spies named Caleb, he interrupts the rest of the spies. And in verse 30, he basically says, everybody stop, stop talking. Let us go up at once and occupy the land for we are able to overcome it. We can do it. So, that's, so Caleb's one, we see later on that Joshua, another one of the spies, agrees with Caleb and says, yes, we can do this. So two of, of the 12 are saying, yes, we can do this. And this is really subtle, but it's, it's so important. Uh, this argument between the spies, between Joshua and Caleb and the other ten, it gives us our next warning about disbelief. And that is, disbelief is always a choice. It's a choice. It's a decision that we make. Now, that may surprise you because we often think of, of faith or lack of faith as a matter of fact or experience. Uh, we don't believe because there's not enough evidence, someone might say. Or I don't believe because God didn't prove himself to me, someone might say. Uh, he didn't earn my trust. And if we're honest, we make our disbelief a matter of facts like that or evidence because then it's God's fault if we don't believe in him. It reminds me of the famous atheist. His name was Bertrand Russell. And he's a brilliant guy. And someone once asked him, if you were to die and you met God on the other side, and he asked you, why didn't you believe in me? What would you say? And Bertrand famously replied, I would say, sir, you did not give me enough evidence. In other words, Bertrand said, I didn't believe in you, God, and it's your fault. But this story, and we do that too, this story doesn't allow us to get away with that. This belief does not spring from a lack of facts. It springs from a lack of faith. You see, as John Orberg, a Christian author, puts it, uncertainty is a matter of the intellect. That's a matter of fact. But disbelief is a settled matter of the will. It's a decision that comes from the heart. 
It's a choice. And one commentator puts it this way concerning the different reports these spies give. He says, significantly, two men could see the exact same sights, the same grapes, the same men, the same land, the same cities. One could come away singing in faith, and the other is filled with a sense of certain doom. Ultimately, faith or unbelief does not spring from circumstances or environment, but from our hearts. Caleb and the rest of the spies, they don't have a different set of facts they're working with. They didn't see different parts of the land from each other. They went on the exact same path. They don't disagree because of the facts. They disagree because they have different levels of faith. Notice that Caleb does not argue that the cities are fortified. They are. He does not argue that the men, the fighting men are strong. They are. He does not not argue that the land may well be very difficult to conquer and take a long time. He doesn't argue any of that. In fact, I'm sure Caleb is scared. (laughs) He'd have to be crazy not to be. But Caleb sees with the eyes of faith. And he chooses to interpret those facts and his own emotional response in light of what God can do, not in light of what he can do. This is the difference between him and the spies. The difference is choice. And that's the difference in our own lives too. We may find ourselves in a situation where we are afraid or angry or bitter or in pain. Anything that will tempt us to disbelieve. And in those moments, every one of them, we have a decision to make. Will we trust or abandon God? Will we move forward despite our doubts and fears? Or will we be paralyzed by them? Will we see in our circumstances what God can do with them or what we can do with them? And every one of those moments matters, every single one, because they either move us closer to life and peace or they move us closer to fear and anxiety. And the more we choose fear and anxiety and a lack of trust, the more we will choose that. The more the facts will tell us to abandon God, to not trust him. And before you know it, your whole life will revolve around proving how God has failed you and how you were justified in abandoning him. You've met this person. You might even be that person, that person who can no longer receive anything good from God. They can no longer believe he is good, not because of the facts, but because they've decided so. You don't want to believe anymore. And that's exactly where Israel finds itself in our story. In verse 32, the spies begin to actually change the facts of their story to support their decision to disbelieve. If you remember at the beginning, they say, yeah, the land is good, but the people are strong. By the time they spread this bad report throughout the camp, they say the land devours its inhabitants and the people are of great height. In other words, they start to say, the land is not conquerable. And even if it were, we wouldn't want it. It's terrible. God is a liar. And as this report begins to spread, the people become desperate. At the beginning of Numbers 14, they throw themselves a pity party all night long. They're crying and wailing. And then they start to complain in the morning in chapter 14, verse 2. And if you've been reading along with us, you've heard this complaint before. They say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
And except this time, they complain, but they don't just complain, they make a plan. In verse 4, they, they start, they, they say, forget Moses, let's find another leader who will take us back to Egypt right now. In other words, they basically say, anyone, anywhere, anything is better than you, Moses, is better than this, is better than you, God. We're done. Anything would be better. And G.K. Chesterton is a famous Christian thinker. He sums this up so well for us. He says, when people cease to believe in God, they do not believe in nothing but in anything. Israel would trust in anything at this point. Anything. And they aren't just trying to use hurtful words with God when they complain. They literally believe that Egypt and slavery would be better than God and the promised land. And this is the third warning we hear about disbelief in this story. Disbelief in one thing equals belief in something else. Disbelief in one thing equals belief in something else. We all trust in something. We all think that there's something in our lives that will make us happy and fulfilled and significant and successful. There's something that will keep us safe and secure. This is simply what it means to be human. This is the way we were designed. We all have faith in something. But we often lie to ourselves when we choose to disbelieve in God. We think that we're returning, by by disbelieving in God, we're returning to some neutral place in our faith, like atheism. You know, I don't believe in anything. Or agnosticism. I don't really know what I believe. But there's no neutral place in faith. You believe. You worship something. At least Israel in our story has the guts to name it out loud, what they worship. They will go, they will worship Egypt, they will worship Pharaoh, they will worship the comforts and wealth there over God. That's what they want to do. What gods do we choose over him? Even if you're a Christian, even if you don't say it out loud, what do we turn to to avoid the battle, to make life easier? Is it money? Is it power? Is it pleasure? Is it all of the above? Here's a little advice that we all need. Put those gods to the test. Like Israel's doing to God here. Find out, will they deliver you? Will they make your life better? Will they answer your prayers? Will they take your pain away? And if you've ever done that before, if you've ever tried that, you know that they don't. And yet, we all of us return to them over and over again, don't we? How quickly we become spiritual addicts to these false gods that never deliver. And Israel is in the same rut. They know that Egypt is a terrible place for them. They know that life was miserable there. They know that their lives will be in danger there, but they don't care anymore. They can't. Their disbelief has gone so far, it has clouded their judgment so badly that they can no longer choose what is right or what is good. They would rather die than be wrong. They say we would rather die in the wilderness of our pride than to live in the land of God's promises. Israel knows, and this, well, this is our fourth warning about disbelief. Disbelief, when it's left unchecked, eventually chooses death over life. It chooses death over life. And Israel knows that abandoning God is to turn their back on the Creator Himself. They know that better than anyone. To turn their back on the one who gives and sustains life. They know this, but they no longer experience the life He has for them. They can't. They no longer see the good they had in him. 
They choose death because life with God has become unbearable for them. They say, no more, we're done. And that attitude, that attitude right there, is hell itself. This is where disbelief leads. And C.S. Lewis is a 20th century author and, and Christian. He captures this idea well in his novel, The Great Divorce. He describes hell as the sprawling, seemingly endless suburb where people are drab and self-absorbed and boring and they're miserable. They, they find joy in nothing in this novel. And yet every day, a bus leaves from hell and takes to heaven anyone who gets on the bus. And when the people from hell step out into heaven after this bus ride, they hate it there. They can't stand it. It, it physically pains them to be there. So strong is their disbelief, they can no longer experience any pleasure in life or any friendship or any community because those things belong to God. So they all get back on the bus and they go back to hell. They choose death over life every day. And Lewis includes in his book these sobering words. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And Israel, in so many ways, at this point in our story, has chosen hell. And God is heartbroken about this. He pulls Moses aside in chapter 14, verse 11, and he says, How long will this people despise me? They hate me. How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And this language that God uses, it's language of lament. This, this is language of a husband who's lost a wife. This is language of a father who's lost a child. He is so heartbroken over what's happening. He's heartbroken and then he's enraged. And he gives Israel exactly what they ask for, which is death in the wilderness. And here's what he says to them, starting in verse 21. Here's a summary of what he says. He says, But truly as I live, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And he continues in verse 28. He says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day. You shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And we hear those words, and, and maybe you think, wow, that was harsh. <laughs> maybe too harsh of God to condemn Israel this way. But honestly, I don't think so. What surprises me most is not his harshness, but his lenience. And we skipped over this briefly, but God said in verse 12, he said, I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you, Moses. And why not? This is what Israel asked for. 
They've literally said, we would rather die than be with you and go where you go. But he doesn't do it. God doesn't destroy them all. Why? Why not? And the answer we get from this text is because he loves them. Despite themselves, he loves them. This is the last thing we learn about disbelief. Disbelief is only defeated by love. Before God annihilates his people, Moses speaks to God on their behalf. And he says, God, if you do this, you will be a laughingstock among the nations. But more importantly than that, God, you love these people as broken as they are. You love them. And Moses says this to God in verse 18 of chapter 14. He says, the Lord, you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. You will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, but please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses says to God, remember you love. Now did God forget this? No. Does Moses talk God out of his judgment? No. But remember, God is a person. He's a person. He never changes his mind. He is eternal. He is unchangeable, yet he interacts with his people as a person in relationship. And just as we pray, asking God to do something, Moses essentially does the same thing. And how God interacts with our requests is mysterious. I don't have all the answers on that. But we believe he does. He does interact with those. And Moses says, God, I know who you are. Be who you are. Loving and forgiving, faithful to your promise to this people. And God says, okay, I will. I will remember. He punishes the guilty. We read that. But he preserves his promise. Disbelief is defeated by love. So does that make Moses the hero of our story? No. Moses intercedes for the people, yes, but we'll see later on even he fails. Even he does not enter the promised land because of his own disobedience. He's not a hero. We need someone better than Moses. We also need someone who will intercede on our behalf, one who will stand before God in our defense, one who would be despised just like Moses and the people would reject him too. And they wouldn't just reject him, they would actually crucify and kill him. This hero wouldn't simply remind God of his love, he would be God's love incarnate in the flesh. He wouldn't just plead for our forgiveness, he would die for our forgiveness while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies. While we were still in disbelief, Jesus proves his love. He chooses death, he chooses hell so that we can have heaven, we can have life. It says in the Gospel of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Only Jesus can make us want to believe again. So do you want to believe? You want to? We all wrestle with this every day, each one of us, and the only cure for our disbelieving hearts is to be so gripped, to be so enraptured by the love of the one God sent and the one who intercedes for us that the shackles of disbelief fall away and by his grace and by his love somehow we believe
God, help us all. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are so struck by Israel's failure in this story to trust you. Israel's failure to trust you over and over and over again. And we see in that failure a mirror. We see ourselves. And we are so thankful that you've proven your love for us by sending your son, even when we still didn't trust you, to prove how much you love us, to prove that we can give you everything we have and everything we are. Empower us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.